0: Hey, it's been months, but we're still here. <laughs> and we have a new project, kind of. I mean, it is a project. Uh, we're not announcing it yet. So our last episode was in, what, December? I think in December, right? Oh, yeah. But yeah, where, where have we been, Alex? <laughs> well, I got COVID. <laughs> Again, is it is is it the third time you got COVID? <laughs> it's the
1: second time I got COVID, oh, okay. and like <laughs> this time, I had flown to a wedding in West Palm Beach in Florida. Um, for a friend's wedding. And I was planning to have lots of fun. Turns out I was feeling like really shitty. And then I I thought it was also just like over exhaustion because I was preparing for a big move to Indo. (gasps) And it was also like a really horrible winter in New York. And then I guess like I texted my friend and I was like, I'm feeling really bad. So I'll go to your wedding, but I don't think I can go to the after party. And we had planned to go paddle boarding and kayaking for the after party, which I was really looking forward to. But I'm like, I don't think I can do anything physical Mm -hmm. besides sit and have dinner. And then she said, hey, can you like do a COVID test before you attend dinner um, tomorrow? And then I did like three times and And I was like well fuck did I just (laughs) book a ticket book a hotel to only just
0: stay inside yeah Um, but there's a lot of people over here that already got their third what do you call that injection vaccine the third vaccine the booster but they still got COVID too so you know yeah um
1: I mean that's another thing right like masking and getting vaccines is like now a political thing in the state like it's like a political statement in the states like some people are like they really advocate for getting every single booster that like comes out and like I don't know, like, I've talked to, do- I'm not gonna spread or whatever, like, I'm not, like, I'm not, no, but I'm saying I've talked to doctors, and doctors, doctors have they, told me that you don't actually need every single booster. Yeah. Because, like, how many has
0: it, like, three, four booster rounds, right? I think four, yeah, I haven't gotten the, my fourth one, but. So I mean. we have gotten three. Yeah. I mean, you can travel with just, like, two, so it's like, as long as I'm, like good like healthy and i was like i'm just gonna yeah
1: yeah anyway so i re, and then i relocated to jakarta yeah. welcome welcome <laughs> and i'm still and then for like the first month and a half or whatever i had horrible like dust allergies
0: yeah and i didn't realize that you were like i didn't realize that you were already in indonesia i think that was like around christmas and new year's right Yeah, and I was hanging out with one of our friends and he was asking like, where is Alex? And I was like, I don't know, maybe she's going to move back here in like March or April. And then I didn't know that you were already in Jakarta. And I was like, duh. What a good friend. Yeah, because I just, I didn't tell anyone
1: i was laying low because because once you tell people people are like oh let's let's do this let's do that let's hang Hang out out, and i number one i was so sick and tired at the time like actually literally sick and tired at the time that i wouldn't have the energy to hang out or like be a fun person to hang out with Mm. um but also like like so like some of my friends have have started posting, like I've started hanging out with people and like some of my friends posted my photo on their stories. And so a bunch of people are like, oh my God, you're in Jakarta now, like you're back, blah, blah, blah. And
0: um, I don't want to hang out with everyone. (laughs) (gasps) Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of social media in this episode... We're talking to Emi Rutgianan about disinformation and digital maturity. Especially during
1: what we call peak seasons, which are election season. Yes. And um, I mean, Indonesia is having elections next year. So like we're already starting to feel
0: yeah the heat. Did they come to your house already? Like, because they send like, I don't know, like a uni kids over here to like... Kind of, like, do, like, census? Like, how many people living in your house? And how many of them are going to vote? And blah, blah, blah. You know? Um, I don't think my neighborhood allows
1: outsiders, like...
0: But they get permission because they need to, like... You need to get the form. Because they... they they ask for the, I don't know, what do you call that in English? kaka Kartu Keluarga. Mm-hmm. And then they would, like, put down all the names of the families. And uh,
1: I think, well, I have to check. But I think, like, if that were to happen, they would either give it to um, the RW mm-hmm. to, to, like, distribute it to the people. Or they would, if I was at the apartment, they would give it to, like, I don't know, the apartment management to have people fill it out. But um, I I... I don't think, like where where I live, like people can like go to your house and like knock on your door and ask you to fill out a census. Mm. I have to
0: check because that's never happened before, yeah. and, and I was I- like, "Why so early?" Like it's <gasps> like I asked him like for what for what election is it? Like the 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 what do you call that? The province. Uh, like, provincial or, or elections the provincial election or is it for and you said I can know it's for next year and I was like yeah.
1: well I actually have a very interesting like um, election story but I don't know if I can tell it <laughs> why <laughs> um, because I, I want to be safe because I live here now
0: mm. I mean the only election I did was like in, way back uh, in SBA era and after that, I don't think, I don't think I, yeah, I don't think I did.
1: I mean, I was never an Indo,
0: so.
2: Mm.
1: Oh, I actually did. I, I did actually vote through the embassy,
0: um, and it felt really bleh, voting. At the time. I never, I've never done that. How, how did it feel, like, like? what was the procedure like you went there and then they provide these boxes like that you can just like went into and like do choblos choblos so i have to say the reason i said it felt blah because
1: i i remember at the time really feeling like i was just voting for the lesser of two evils and that happens every time mm-hmm. basically because now like i i've been asking my friends if they're gonna vote next year and they're all saying like I, we just have to vote for the lesser of two evils mm-hmm. um what the process what like you can pick two processes like you can line up at the embassy and then there are like time slots and you get a time slot and then um within that time slot you still have to line up and there's like a like a voting booth and um yeah you you like pierce the piece of paper because that's how we do it in indonesian elections called bloss and um the other option is to get um, the the paper mail to you and mm. then you mail it back to the embassy or I feel like I feel like there was an option to like drop it off or something like that. Um, I think so yeah yeah yeah, so I did that option because it's much much easier to um, do the mailing thing instead of like lining up. I hate lining up sorry um, and um uh it was pretty straightforward i would say but like i think like if you want to get it mailed like you have to register as you have to register to get it mailed in time um because you know like they need time to mail it back to count to they need to receive it in time to count the votes right um So I think there were a lot of people who actually wanted to do the the mailing process, but then Mm -hmm. they didn't register in time, so they were forced to queue up, line up at the embassy, and a lot of people didn't like that. But that was the only option, or the other option is you
0: don't vote. Yeah, I remember I didn't. Yeah, I didn't vote because I saw all the requirements I need to do. So I was like, fuck it. I know, I know who's gonna win already. So you you knew who's gonna win. I mean, it's quite obvious, no like last election last election was 2018 right yeah 2018 it was uh jokowi and um what's that guy's name the the military guy right
2: Mm
0: -hmm. it was last year right yeah Mm -hmm. and then they try to contest it to contest the results (laughs) i mean if that's a trend that's just you know every year they're going to try to contest the result you think this year they're going to i mean it's depends though depends who depends who's going to be the 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 two candidates okay honestly though honestly they contested
1: the results and then at the end the the loser the, the the candidate who lost he ended up being the minister of defense right so it's like like he still holds a position, and well, probably... it's kind of the
0: same thing with the the Republican and the the yeah. Democrats. It's that yeah. they try to bridge thing, which is, which is, for me, it's kind of good. So in that way, we can like somehow monitor his movement, you know, like because we will we will never know with like all the rumors that's been like you know going around. It's like he's kind of like a crazy person who loves horses, but you know. <laughs> but what do you mean monitor the fact that he works with the the uh, the other party that is the our, uh, president's party
1: i think it's not like one party or the other something that i don't think it's one party or the other i think That people in politics, they're all just friends and they all have dinners and lunch with each other. And they're all like, they have to. And they're like, their families are friends. And this like disagreement that they have is like a fucking show for the voters. Yeah. Yeah. It's a political show. Like they put on a performance. To make people think that, oh, like one party is better than the other or like, oh, I'm going to vote for this one. But at the end of the day, it's all the same. Mm. Things don't change. That's why people who think that the Democratic Party is going to save the United States, it's not. People who think that Jokowi is going to save Indonesia, he has not. And so it's all like, like they're all the same. They're all friends and they all like,
0: you know, sleep over at each other's house. Yeah, so should we introduce Emmy? Oh yeah, Emmy Ruthianan is a full-time professor teaching public policy, governance, and development economics at the Polytechnic University of the Philippines, Manila.
1: Alongside teaching, she undertakes research endeavors focused on disinformation trends across Southeast Asia and its impact on democratization, civil society participation, digital communication processes, and the nexus of decentralization and regionalism efforts.
0: Her current research endeavors is focused on comparative disinformation challenges in Southeast Asia and its involving relationship with democracy and digital transformation. Let's start with a little bit of background about what you're doing.
3: Yeah, I'm Emmy, and I uh, teach economics at a state university here in the Philippines. Um, it's one of the largest state universities, so it's funded by the government. And most of our students, they come from lower to uh, low-middle income class um, members of the society. So um, that's that's what I do.
1: So I'm super curious. Uh, Because you had sent the materials for the digital maturity one. And maybe you can tell us your recent research that you've been doing recently.
3: Yeah. Um, After I graduated from a uh, scholarship in Australia, my professor enlisted my help in better understanding um, the level of digital maturity in the public sector in the Philippines. Uh, So we've been working for some time. And um, it's aligned with what I'm doing on disinformation. So I was trying to, initially, when I was doing my independent study, um, I was trying to understand how disinformation is um, evolving across Southeast Asia. At least, um, I did Malaysia and uh, the Philippines and Singapore. And to a certain extent, we also compared it with um, what's happening with Indonesia. There are similarities. And what I've been seeing so far is that Much of this information landscape is partly attributed to an an equal access to to digital tools, so it's like a digital divide. Um, So when my professor approached me for this project, I said yes, and we wanted to understand how mature um, government agencies are in terms of their digital maturity. So we talked to a lot of government agencies, um, so... What we did was we did some surveys and also some focus group discussions. And um, we learned a lot of things. Uh, I think one of the best insights that we got was, you know, everybody wants digital transformation. They want to mature in terms of uh, using technology to the advantage of service delivery. But we don't necessarily or we don't fully understand how it unfolds or what does it entail. Because we like technology a lot. But the bigger component of digital transformation and maturity is that of culture and, you know, a change in behavior, how we see technology not as a, like, a panacea. Like, when you automate things, it's going to be fine. But, um, and uh, there's, there's, um, there's some kinds of thoughts that um, we, we saw during the research that, you know, when, when you automate, it's going to be fine already. Um, but as the study unfolds, uh, we, we learned a lot about how culture, how the presence of champions and advocates would help us um, improve uh, our maturity or our um, a, a better relationship with technology. Um, it's kind of uh, a, like disparate. But uh, when I was trying to think about it, if people in the government cannot fully fathom how technology affects our lives, then what more? Those in the grassroots... Those people who are ordinary folks that are just using their mobile phones and the different gadgets that in them um, um, who are us- using um the internet yeah. so um yeah, but what is digital maturity for
0: those who are not mm-hmm. well aware of what's the meaning of digital maturity and how how could you explain digital maturity to like regular people,
3: yeah. So that was also one of the, the biggest questions that we are getting from our participants. So when we talk about digital maturity, you want to understand your level. Um. So that's one. You want to understand the level of your understanding and also how you use technology, really, in terms of your service delivery, at least for the public sector. So that's um digital maturity. There are different levels. So this comes from the how the australian government south australian government developed uh, their digital maturity tool so there's a level that is still uh, on the developmental stage so that means that you are still trying to grapple how um how you're going to use technology in your day-to-day operations and then there's emerging Um, you have some tools but it's not really automated and that there's not much champions in in government or in your organization for that. And then there's also um, transformational and the, the last um, stage is being advanced. So that means that um, your services are what we call uh, digital by default or your mm. operations are digital by default. It means that you're doing things digitally or that um, everything is integrated with technology. There are advocates, people understand how the process goes, um, on the, how it's done online and how it also translates into offline operations. So I think um, that's how we can explain digital maturity.
0: Okay, and, and how does that look like digital maturity in Southeast Asia so far?
3: Uh, so far've we've, uh, we've only studied the Philippines. Um, that's the focus of our study. Um, and um, based on um, it's, it's a preliminary um, study that we did. So at least in the Philippines and for the public sector in the Philippines um digital maturity is still um from the emerging towards the transitional so it's like around level 2 or 3 that means that um some parts are automated some parts are some processes in government service delivery are translated into online services but many other parts are uh done physically so Let me give you a very concrete example. When you apply for a passport in the Philippines, you can already book an appointment online. So there's a website. You go to the Foreign Affairs uh, Ministry um, website and then you can already book your appointment. You can choose the time and the date when you go to a certain place to get your passport, uh, Mm -hmm. your new passport or your renewed passport. So that's one. But then... After applying online, you still have to go to a um, passport center, uh, a passport renewal center physically. So you don't get it like in, in other countries where you can already get like, uh, there there are already moves, uh, there are already approaches towards having a, like a digital passport or that everything is done online. You just have to receive the physical passport or it would only be delivered at your home, at your doorstep. So um, in the Philippines, the first part is digitized, but the other parts are still done physically. So um, I think that basically explains how much of the services that we have here is done. You can do some appointments online, but then again, the harder part, the more tedious part, are still done physically. You still have to line up Mm -hmm. when you want to renew or you want to get a pertinent document. So I think um, you you also get um, the picture. Mm. Um,
1: it reminds me of in Indonesia, we're having the elections, the presidential elections next year. And mm-hmm. um, the last presidential elections, people were like, there were groups of people contesting the results. And mm-hmm. they kind of copied how in the US it was like, oh, like, the, the results were were rigged right. or were hacked or or whatever. Um, and a lot of people were saying, well, because in Indonesia, you literally have to do it on paper. You you like line up and like punch a hole in a paper. There's no way that there's like a, a system that's rigged. Or, you know, people can't hack into mm-hmm. the system because it's literally a piece of paper that you you bloss a hole in. <laughs> um, so um, I wonder Let's say if digital maturity is achieved and government agencies have been digitally transformed, how does that relate to um, Mm -hmm. disinformation in Southeast Asia or the Philippines specifically?
3: Yeah, um, that's one of the things that I'm trying to also understand or that's one of the things that I want to explore. Um, Well, for one... I think it's more about the relationship that we have with technology. We have to understand how we want to use technology in our lives um, and how we want to interact with it. So I think it's more on the... Um, like I don't know if you can call it a moral or a social concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's one. Um, but secondly, um, as I have said, it's, it's not a panacea. So once we understand the relationship, we also want to understand where our rights, what are our rights when it comes to um, exploring the digital space, but also how can we, um, how do you call this, um, how do you recover your space online? Or how do you, how do you further um, encourage more people to participate, not just online, but also how to, how does it translate offline? I think uh, that's, that's one of the things, uh, because disinformation is mostly, um, much of the studies have shown that it's, it's really behavioral. Like, how do, what's your information-seeking behavior? How do you validate your information? And we always tend to say one of the go-to um, uh, solutions against disinformation or what we call fake news is um, we just penalize social media platforms or we just do an anti-fake news bill. We, yeah. just on, we just pass and we just pass this kind of legislation. I think that's also familiar with Indonesia and yeah. and that's similar with the Philippines. You know, there's always that move to censor, just you know, tell people that don't speak about these kinds of things. But that also stems from the fact that we don't fully understand um, how we relate and how we talk online. Does it really change, or that it's, it's just a a reflection of how we do things offline? And and whatever the case is. Um, I think, understanding how our relationship with technology works, how our society is impacted by digital transformation, how mature is our understanding of our digital tools and how technology moves in our lives, that, or that would also like, um, influence how we can address disinformation later on. Yeah, the proliferation of um, fake news and, and bad information um, in in our society today, mm. yeah,
0: but but I feel like those kind of bills that anti fake news or um, anti disinformation by the government, mm-hmm. it's a kind of problematic because who is in power to control the narrative, right? Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. So yeah. Um, when I did some uh, compare, comparisons of our experiences, that's one of the things that. Uh, that really stood out um, the state is one of the biggest actors when it comes to disinformation and, and even creating networks of um, influencers and peddlers of um, fake um, what we call fake news yeah. although um, many institutions are saying uh, scholars are now saying that you should not call it fake news especially journalists they are saying that you don't call it fake news because news is similar or news is synonymous to telling the truth. So it's mm-hmm. going to be like a paradox when you say fake news. Um, so mm-hmm. maybe false information, unverified news. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a lot of similarities with, with our experiences in the Philippines and Indonesia, um, and also in large parts of Southeast Asia, primarily because we share the same uh, socioeconomic challenges. Um. There's a growing gap between uh, the rich and and the poor. And um, there remains to be a digital divide, even with a lot of reports saying that there's a lot of people now or households that are connected to the internet. That's something that we celebrate. But you also look at the quality of the connection. You also look at the um, kinds of information or the platforms that they're exposed to. And also the socio-economic realities that they are faced with. So, like for example, here in the Philippines, and I think I saw that also in cases of Indonesia when where there are a lot of cyber, I what was that called, cyber troopers? I think, yeah. Um, yeah so like here in in our term, we call them trolls or troll armies. Mm. Yeah. So many of them are like freelancers, and they can compare compartmentalize. Um, they, can, they can compartmentalize their, their moral convictions from the work that they do, primarily because they need some form of employment that's going to pay easy and that's going to meet some of their immediate needs. So, and um, troll work is unfortunately one of those kinds of things.
1: So you said that a lot of these disinformation online is funded by the state. And how like how direct how direct does money flow from the state to these freelancers? Like, are there a lot of agencies, parties, companies in between to to sort of muddy Mm -hmm. the tracks of how the money flowed from from, you know, power to the the these mm-hmm. people who hide behind their screens
3: well we we wouldn't see it like physically or because if if we were able to track the money easily then you know we the, the fight against disinformation would be much easier so it's it's placed in layers and i think the term that was used in one, um in one of the studies of um, filipino scholars uh, jonathan ong um, he was talking about architects of network disinformation. So there are hierarchies. So like there are uh, low-ranking people who are, like, who are trolling and who are spreading this false information. And then there are second-level supervisors up until the higher parts, which are led by boutique public relations agencies.
2: Mm-hmm. And
3: um, it's not directly related to the state or to any other political party because the work is contracted. So you don't get to see it. Mm-hmm. There were also, um, in a recent study that was done, uh, there were also at these cases in the Philippines where they were able to track some um, junior staffers in public offices where they are asked to, you know, just create a separate Facebook account and, you know, just put some good comments mm-hmm. um, on our site or react to the bad comments that are posted in our site and it's part of the work that is assigned to them so that you know um, you they can get up in the um, or they can get higher in the work ladder mm-hmm. so in in Filipino terms we call that pakikisama so that means that you kind of um, suck it in so that you can stay on the job and just like that but there are no overt uh, there are like there are no overt um, evidences or there are no overt um, uh, Trails that we can see mm. uh, for, for that, there are stories, yeah. But um, I don't think, yeah,
1: it's so much during election season mm-hmm. in Indonesia. It's like the the supervisors will sort of give you know a certain kind of social pressure to their employees um, so that they vote for a certain party that is maybe a shareholder of the company or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you can't, of course, you can't track that, you know, because everything is like soft. Um, what's what's the term? Uh, like these pressures are intangible, but somehow um, an entire company ends up voting for this person, you know, and um
3: mm-hmm. yeah.
1: I, I think that's a very Southeast Asia thing. <laughs> um, yeah,
3: I think. Unfortunately, it's all done in the shadows, and you know, um, it's all done because um, we want to be more cooperative, and we don't want to confront. I think, yeah, Southeast Asian too. Like, we don't want to confront these kinds of things head on. You know, we don't want to make mm-hmm, some kind of yeah. conflict stuff like that.
0: Yeah. Uh, since we are talking about the voting se- uh, season. What do you think, Emmy? That because digital media and social media brings this sense of um, freedom to participate, right? Mm-hmm. But do you feel like in Southeast Asia that type of participation really fruitfully uh, manifested into something, let's say, like uh, like passing a new bill that purely uh, based on the citizen participation online or is it just a tool for government to gather that participation during this type of season?
3: Yeah. Well, um, voting season definitely is um, like, a um, how do you call that? The, the peak, high season. Yeah, yeah, it's the peak of a lot of uh, disinforma- disinformation campaigns and stuff like that. It's like a new version of mudslinging, you know. You do it online. Yeah, um, it's it's a circus, <laughs> really. Um, yeah, but um, would with legislation help um, in the short term, sure, it it can help. Uh, we're going to crack down on people, but eventually, it's it's going to affect more political participation that it could than it could help. It would. Um, it would dampen democracy and um, clamp down on our freedoms mm. of expression. It would stifle their speech more than it would enrich the discourse. I think for democracies, it's much more important for us to enrich the discourse, um, put it out there, and you know discuss it collectively as as a nation. And these are big terms. You know, it's it's difficult to achieve definitely, but um, I think those are aspirations that we want to see. Um, and I hope that you also share the same um, in, in our countries. Um, also, because yeah. we share the same parts of our history where we've been under a dictatorship.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And, you know, we, we know it's hard if you cannot speak about things that are dear to you or that you cannot criticize. So I don't think that legislation is the only way to go. Community engagement would be much more important, you know, going back to our roots asking how people understand information how they seek information um looking for much more novel ways to to discuss particularly the more controversial parts of our history yeah. because yeah um at least in the Philippines that's how things are unfolding right now um where yeah. once again in um you know when when uh, our president won the elections it put into the forefront how we should uh, grapple or how we should uh, respond to the potential return of a dictatorship mm-hmm. you know because he is the son of a former dictator
2: yeah. um, in the
3: country so yeah, um so it's 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 a difficult discussion but yeah. i think we have to confront it as as a nation Mm -hmm. and there are a lot yeah Yeah.
0: I feel like when you said we need to go back to our roots and our community I'm thinking of like in my own immediate family circles we have a whatsapp group and from talking with my friends it seems like they also have like a whatsapp group with their families Mm -hmm. and sometimes the members of the families would send like a blast of like disinformation like so often I mean, I don't know what's the case in the Philippines, but I feel like in Indonesia, WhatsApp is the the medium for mm-hmm. disinformation in a like more private uh, sphere than Facebook, let's say. Yeah,
1: I think Ruth and I were, as we were preparing for this episode, we were talking about the evolution of disinformation or political engagement using social media through the years so Mm -hmm. i noticed like back in the msn messenger days like way back when um there wasn't a lot of you know political engagement or Mm -hmm. anything through msn chats at the time Mm -hmm. and then after msn it was like the blackberry era and that's when people started having these like blasts of um you know disinformation Mm -hmm. and then as it has evolved like now we have all of these like whatsapp blasts of course Mm -hmm. um and on instagram you know, like you said, the comment section is a bunch of trolls um, on Facebook, of course. And then now there's TikTok, which is another medium. So these apps that were historically for people to connect have become like such a powerful tool to spread disinformation in like a private way, I guess, like amongst people that you normally trust and... Um, Maybe you can talk more about that.
3: Yeah, I think, yeah, it, it comes from the fact that we, we are too optimistic about technology, um, particularly with social media platforms, because um, people are wired to connect. You know, we want to establish more relationships. We wanted to talk to a lot of people. And so uh, these kinds of uh, messaging platforms were they were put together, um, it's good. Um, I think my stand is always that, Technology and even social media platforms, messaging platforms, would always be a double-edged sword. Like, you can always use it as a force for good, but it can always equally be used to um, spread lies, to, you know, advance some evil plots um, in the same manner that we're using it for for, um, connecting with other people. Because when you're doing these evil deeds, you're still connecting with people, only that you have a different kind of agenda. And so I think that's uh, the uh, side effect. Uh, yeah, that's the side effect of um, the the technology that that we're developing, particularly our messaging platforms. So should we remove them altogether? I don't think. Th- I don't think so. I think what we have to um, to really invest on is when when we connect to people, when we establish those kinds of relationships, are we validating the information that we're talking about, but also. Um, are, are we trying to understand where that person is coming from? Uh, like, we, we definitely have different beliefs or we have different understanding or perspective on certain kinds of things. And most definitely, that's where some of some of these false information or bad um, information or lies uh, become peddled. Yeah, so and, and it's much more difficult when you have to talk to it with family, uh, particularly in in our societies where you know hierarchy and uh, respect is important, respect for the elders is important. Yeah, so it's it's much more difficult to to tackle that. But um, mm-hmm. I think that's where community engagement, or that's where you know going back to our roots and trying to really understand behaviors and information seeking. Um,
1: I wonder if disinformation, like if the spreading of disinformation, is just gonna be a part of our current social media culture now like there's no way to Mm
2: -hmm.
1: to continue having social media without Mm
2: -hmm.
1: without this new trend like it's become such a trend now to use these channels to like uh, like really push a certain agenda
3: Mm -hmm. yeah well this information has really been there even before, uh, like it took different forms. It's just that today, with the instant information, the speed of information that we get, it's much more different. Or It's uh, it's like it, it has become a trend, but it's, it's still there. So I think it's going to be really a feature. You're right about that. It's really going to be a feature of our conversations, of public discourse. So yeah, the, the bigger question is how do you move forward with it? knowing that it's going to be there as always.
1: Yeah, it's really scary like I mean we we saw the whole Facebook thing of yeah. people not being able to tell, you know, uh-huh. between what is uh, what is tr- true and what is false mm-hmm. if I can use those terms. Mm-hmm. But then now it seems like there are these influencers who, I guess I guess they're also paid, um, but they're like the high level people instead of like the trolls in the comments. Um, these influencers who are paid to spread all kinds of disinformation. And what I've realized is that influencers have actually have so much power in shaping how, society thinks like I see how trends in Indonesia, whether it's fashion, whether it's art, whether it's uh, like the hip places to go, like those trends are are really, truly shaped by influencers. And so when they start talking about, um, you know, deeper topics in society besides fashion and uh, or like, you know, which paintings to buy, it feels I don't know. I I just think it it's just so scary. <laughs> yeah,
3: <laughs> it's like looking into a dystopian future. Mm. Like, are, are are people gonna be able to distinguish truth from the the lies? And yeah, it's it's, it's really scary. Mm. <laughs> I'm not really sure how you know how we should. Yeah, <laughs> but
0: but I guess um, like what you said on your uh, research paper. That mm-hmm. education is the key, right? But what type of what kind of educations? Since mm-hmm. kids are already living online today,
3: yeah, um, definitely in terms of education, the formal side of education, people, uh, students who are going to school. Um, I think there's a move; there are actions right now that uh, teach students how to media literacy and digital literacy. So that's one way of doing things. But, um the more novel ways of doing it is you really go to communities mm-hmm. and you know um so like, for example, before the pandemic, my friends and I usually go to depressed communities in in parts of metro Manila, and we just do storytelling, just engage these young children um into into stories and then so. Before the pandemic, my friend and I started this organization called the Christian-Muslim Solidarity Network. So back then, our challenge was um, Christians and Muslims are... And this is kind of a uh, difficult topic, I don't... uh, But um, we we have some insurgency... uh, We have some... Um, security challenges in several parts of the Philippines, and much of it is painted as a fight between Christians and Muslims. Um, and my friend and I uh, we wanted to address that conflict by, you know, making sure that we as Christians or we as with people with Christian backgrounds, would be able to reach out to Muslim kids and you know, tell them that we're not so different. and then we we tried talking to them, and they were telling us these young young kids, they were telling us that, you know, um, we don't want to fight or that um, when they go to schools, public schools where they're exposed to um, non-Muslim kids, they, they kind of have problems because, you know, they we, we kind of have these um, inferiority challenges and, and things like that. And it also doesn't help that they live in poor communities. So I think um, what we did was we reached out, we, we relied on storytelling just to flesh out what their realities are, and to try to understand where they're coming from. And from there, um, I think we help dispel the notion that, you know, Christians and Muslims should be fighting each other. They should actually be friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that's one of the ways that um, we can also, like, address this information when we are another, when we try to bridge out our differences, not necessarily sweep it under the rug and tell them that, you know, we're not so different from each other, but really understanding where our differences come from. Where it is where is it rooted from, and um, while while we live on different planes or we have different perspectives, there are th- things that we can come into as a common ground. So I think those are some yeah. of the things that um, we can do aside from you know relying on formal education.
0: Yeah. So there's there's an agreement uh within this the Asian countries in two thousand eighteen right I think in, on your research says something to like tackle disinformation and why didn't that work from your perspective
3: ah yeah the uh, the ASEAN agreement well there there was actually there was an ASEAN agreement um it was signed by ASEAN the um. They were able to create a minister's forum for information. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the challenge of that is um, it's formed by governments. Mm-hmm. So it's really more on the government perspective of what fake news is. Mm-hmm. And we know that in our countries, governments do not want to be told that they're wrong. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, so I think that's where the challenge lies. So that's why in one of my study in my studies in the recommendations I I was asking for a parallel track among journalists across ASEAN but also um organizations across ASEAN to, to band together and to form a coalition that would also be contributing to how these ASEAN agreement would would unfold. Because it's all on the formal side and it's all on uh, it's all skewed again. It's all skewed towards the government to benefit the government. Uh, mm-hmm. It doesn't really necessarily um, consult people um, and and really go to the ground. So yeah, I think that's one of the challenges of that. But it's 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 still present. Yeah. Mm.
1: Yeah, when I read that, I didn't know that there was that agreement signed. But when I read that, my first instinct was like, oh, they signed something because nothing changed. (laughs) Like it didn't. Um, There wasn't actual tangible change in society. (laughs) They just, you know, um, signed a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. But actually, what you were saying about governments and their interests, Mm -hmm. and how that relates to disinformation, it makes me think that disinformation kind of blends into or i should say this thing blends into disinformation where the indonesian government they have this law where you can't say something bad about someone and so people can uh go to jail or be sued or arrested or whatever Mm -hmm. um, for writing a bad review because they're like well that is false um that is like you're saying false things about our company okay. um, and we have the right to sue you or like take you to jail or whatever.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so those cases have happened where um, like someone went to a spa and then they use like the wrong um, treatment. And so she had all of these like skin, skin burns
2: yeah.
1: and she wrote a bad review about that spot. And mm-hmm. um, she was brought to jail and and the and then there have been other cases of of um you know public figures who were criticized they they like brought the the people uh, that wrote bad things about them to court and things like that because in their eyes it's like oh that's like spreading false rumors
3: and false information mm-hmm. about someone or a company it's that one is similar to um I think libel, in here in the Philippines, yeah. like you can or slander, like you cannot yeah. ruin the reputation of somebody else, or you you get sued in court. Um, it's usually used or it's usually weaponized by uh, public officials against or celebrities against journalists or um like showbiz reporters. Like you can not talk anything bad against us, so yeah. And then, um, with the um, um, with the passage or at least in the Philippines, with the passage of the um, our cyber law, mm. there were also provisions there on cyber libel, but I think it was contested because um, the the implication is that when you like a post that is slanderous or libelous, you you're also gonna be liable with the law. So that <gasps> uh, that's that's wow. really uh, that's really an mm. overreach and you know yeah. um rights groups are saying that's that's too much um and so i think that was struck as unconstitutional but i'm i'm going to check um mm-hmm. but yeah because that's really an overreach like you'll just like something or that you commented on something that is libelous or slanderous then you're also going to be slapped mm-hmm. with either a punishment or a fine so you know that's, that's really too much yeah and um yeah. Yeah, that's I think that's a danger. Um, in in Malaysia, that's one of the one also of the, the challenges. It's it's being weaponized. The law is being weaponized against uh, journalists that are seeking to investigate corruption charges mm-hmm. in the government. Mm-hmm. I think that's what happened when, with um with the one MDB case. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, this independent group was was being sued be- because of. Um, apparently for, for spilling out what happened in the corruption scandal in 1MDB. Mm-hmm. And that's also what happened with Rappler. Yeah. Uh, but this time, it's different. With Rappler, as uh, they were threatened with libel cases, but they're also challenged with um, their alleged non-payment of taxes or also because of their ownership structure. Huh. So, you, you know, laws can be weaponized just so, yeah. so in silence. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Does does the Philippine government use uh, the disinformation uh, law or like an act against Mm -hmm. like activists in the Philippines? Because it's from what we've heard, when you are an activist, especially like environmental activist Mm -hmm. in Philippines, it's not you know it's a very dangerous place, right? Mm -hmm. But do the government use the this idea of dis- disinformation against the
3: activists well the politicians and public officials and um are careful not to to really censor speech because civil society organizations and rights advocates are very strong strongly organized mm. here in the Philippines so we're kind of we're we're more vocal about it here um, I think that's one of the perks of, um, or one of the benefits of uh, the uh, post eds democracy that we that we have um, obtained, and the challenge is that they're getting more creative about censoring media. Mm. So when we talked about Rappler, they did not directly censor them, but they affected their operations by trumping up charges on. Their taxes or on the structure of ownership of wow. their company. The same is true for uh, one of the biggest networks, media networks in the Philippines, ABS-CBN. Mm-hmm. They were not stifled directly for their speech, but um, they were crippled because of their franchise. Um, so in the Philippines, they have to get a franchise, or they get they get to have a permission from the government to operate.
2: Mm.
3: So what happened was that. They were taken out of the airwaves because of trumped up charges on tax evasion, uh, which are not necessarily true. And even the BIR, Like our tax chief, uh, um, yeah. also told the government or the Senate and the House that they're actually paying their taxes. So you know that it's it's a political thing. Um, so yeah. their franchise is not renewed, and they were also receiving like tax evasion cases. So they're not necessarily. Being censored for what they're doing, public officials or politicians are becoming more creative with how they're Mm -hmm. going to, you know, um, stifle um, speech. And that's more dangerous because, you know, you can weaponize different kinds of laws for that. Yeah. It's much more difficult, like, for example, if you're an environmental activist. um, I think that's one of the problems that we have right now. Like, um, a lot of our rights workers environmentalists are being red-tagged mm-hmm. meaning yeah. they're being slapped with the um, the accusation that you know you're tied with communist groups which is not necessary yeah. it's it's not even true so mm-hmm. i think that's one of the dangers and it's it's something that is really scary that's happening right now yeah. so you've done a lot of research and
1: work on um trends of disinformation in Southeast Asia over the years what's what's like the scariest finding that you've
3: mm-hmm. that you've made um, I think one of the more striking ones is oh well it confirmed how strong governments are in terms of well strong governments in a sense um, of their hold on power like there's there's so much at stake I think that's one of the the biggest um, insights that I've got also that um, it's not really scary but it's really striking to me that you know your socioeconomic status really defines how you're also able to access information and how that also affects how that also transcends with how we um, seek information or how we um, how it translates with our relationship to to information um, I thought that it has nothing to do with that you know it's just that it's the fault of technology i have that kind of a close-minded thing before but studying these things opens you to a lot more of these insights that our socioeconomic realities really affect how how we move around particularly with how we appreciate and understand information so i think it's, it's not necessarily scary at least in in the comparative sense that's that's how we're seeing things what's scary is how government can really be creative
2: Mm
1: -hmm.
3: With how they stifle speech,
1: what what was like a case study where, um, like in the Philippines, class differences resulted in different
3: responses. Um, what specific case study? I think we have this um, assumption that if you are poor, you are unable to make really good political choices like automatically if you're poor you're voting for someone who can give you money mm. so I think that's one of the classic case studies that has been proven wrong that you know um, it's not because that you're poor that you're just choosing over money there are layers to that kind of choice in the same manner that rich people do not necessarily vote properly or intelligently as, as we can say it mm. um, they can also vote you know poorly. In as much um, as we ac- accuse poor people um, with their seemingly bad choices, so you know there's that there's that kind of assumption, and it has resurfaced again this um, recent elections. You know it's it's a very emotional election for for many Filipinos. <laughs> so yeah, mm. yeah. Until now, you can.
1: <laughs> it's interesting that you say that because I. I would imagine or from what I've observed, like a lot of politicians, both in, you know, here and also in the Western hemisphere, they normally appeal to the lower Mm -hmm. um, socioeconomic levels by saying like, oh, uh, you know, by the. They have these, like, ideals about, like, oh, we should do good and, um, like, justice and equality for, for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and not not appealing to them in, like, oh, like, I'm just going to, like, give you money, sort of. Like, I think they appeal to poor people with, with the fact that, oh, because um, we're we're not like the evil people who like stole all the money. We have like values and morals mm-hmm. and we're going to vote according to like our values and morals. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's interesting that there's that, um, that kind of thinking that poor people just um, vote for whoever is going to give them money.
3: Yeah. Because um, there were cases of at least here, there were cases of vote buying. You can see that mm. um, and they're getting more like, um, braver uh, mm. by the meeting they're mm. they're older with their actions
2: mm.
3: uh, so yeah we mean, we think that you know uh, we, we have that assumption but over time because of studies and you know really reaching out to these people you try to understand where is this coming from why are
2: mm.
3: and yeah, so yeah there are there are rationalities or there are reasons behind the votes that they make and we were we're often surprised with um, how complex the decision making is compared to how we see it in the surface.
1: Yeah, in Indonesia, um, people tend to appeal to like the how do you say it? I don't even like the lowest common denominator, mm-hmm. um, or the masses. Um, I don't. I don't even. I'm like, is that is that bad for me to say? I don't even know. Yeah. Or is it politically correct? But I realized that. Um, a lot of the times in Indonesia, it's more about religion than oh yeah, money and material needs. and I wonder if that's the same case in the Philippines, where religion is the tool that is used to sort of galvanize people
3: um well, the at least for us it's the Roman Catholic Church that is uh, we have that as predominant religious background for for many Filipinos,
2: mm-hmm. many
3: of us are. Christians, Roman Catholics. Mm-hmm. So they kind of have a sway in elections. They appeal on the um, moral side of um, the choices that we make. and They've also been very instrumental
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, in recent elections. But I think for us, at least uh, based on um, surveys, The biggest uh, challenges or the biggest issues for Filipinos is not necessarily religion, but more on the economic side of things. Who's, Mm -hmm. who's gonna really fulfill the promise that you know we're gonna be Singapore soon? Mm
1: -hmm.
3: I think that's always been the goal. Yeah,
1: being Singapore means being very robotic, and um, oh my god, just flat and boring, and (laughs) don't. It's like Philippines and Indonesia have all these different islands and yeah. cultures. And yeah.
3: Yeah, but that's always in the. I've always been telling my students that. Why do you like Singapore? I mean, it's a nice place to go to, sure.
1: Exactly. So, but yeah, I, I, for me, like having gone to a Singapore a Singaporean school, I, I'm just like, no, it's. <laughs> so bad it's like the worst in southeast asia i'm sorry to say that <laughs> yeah I, I'm,
3: I'm not sure if this is a proper like a joke but um you know when when you read the the newspapers yeah like south china i think that their newspaper world cheat is south china morning post uh
0: uh-huh. when
3: you read it you know some of their headlines is often either about malaysia philippines or indonesia what's happening in our countries and i was my professor and i were joking So what's happening in their country? They're they're talking about our countries, but they're not talking about theirs.
1: Their
2: own.
3: (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing to talk about because everything is so boring. It also yeah, yeah, and it also speaks to the the kind of um, you you can't really say something bad about the government there, you know, because they've been there for the longest time. And oh no, I'm going.
1: Yeah, we had a um an episode with with an artist earlier on one of the artists and like this wasn't mentioned in the episode or we edited this out of the episode but a lot of visual artists actually um also agree that like in like there's these like uh fairs art fairs or photography fairs and they happen in Jakarta. they happen in manila they happen in singapore um they happen in jakarta and it's always like in singapore like the art uh the art landscape is very just sterile and for the lack of a better word boring because there isn't much that they can say and therefore it's it's funny that like in Indonesia and the Philippines, like there's also such strong censorship and yet mm-hmm. people find really creative ways yeah. to make metaphors, um, <laughs> you know, and still say what we need to say. But somehow in Singapore, it's like, how come people don't find these creative ways to critique? <laughs> um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Or maybe it's the homogeneity. I, I don't know, but... Yeah. Yeah. I feel there's a lot of
0: layers in that inf- like their environment and then the the level of economic uh, background mm-hmm. of Singapore that is so different. I think that mm-hmm. take part in for let's say what
3: Alexander said that reflects in their art. Yeah, I agree with Ruth on that. There's a lot of layers. I mean for the Filipino a lot of Filipinos are enamored the the economic growth of Singaporean who's not going to like it, you know? They're like a global financial center and things like that. Yeah. But um, it also speaks to the kind of politics that they have, who holds the power. And um, for, for the longest time,
2: yeah.
3: people are told that you cannot speak bad about the government or the state. Yeah. Uh, because that's going to be like a betrayal of, your nationalism and stuff like that. What's what's um what's really good to see right now is that many younger people are speaking out. They're trying to carve a space in society, and even if their protests fail, I think that's still a testament to
0: yeah.
3: why democracy and why we need to protect our freedoms of speech and um, you know expression. Yeah.
0: I feel like sometimes when people have dreams about Singapore, most of the time it's about the dream of having like this metropolitan like you know city like modernity not so much as the government (laughs) yeah I feel yeah (laughs) because they were just like oh it's a shopping it's a shopping country and like you know yeah yeah (laughs) but do you feel like researching about this information in Southeast Asia do you is there any like country in Southeast Asia that's really in the forefront of the you know in the act of against
3: disinformation? In the forefront, I think, but um, well, I'm going to be biased. The Philippines really is very active. Um, recently, there are more efforts in building community engagements. And um, um, there's a lot of, um, at least if you go to Spotify, there are there's a whole podcast talking about um, disinformation in the Philippines, case studies, and how people are combating it. And there's also a very active effort among schools and universities to really talk about it. Like for the past few years, at least during the pandemic, many of the trainings that are being given to students are all about spotting fake news, um, fact checking, um, oh, wow. the dangers
0: of disinformation. So why is that? Is that because is it because the disinformation heightened
3: during the the? Yeah. Um yep and uh, because um, scholars are very active in, in speaking out against it you know that the, the dangers of um, being inundated with lies it's, it's going to be very scary and also because we recognized how we've been sleeping on on um, on a lot of accounts that have actually been revising our history and that that partly propelled the rise of the Marcuses um. Uh, recently or today, you know. So yeah, I think that's where the, um, the the battle is now here in the Philippines. I'm also seeing a lot of efforts, at least in Indonesia and in Malaysia. In Malaysia, it's more about discussing how, uh, laws are being weaponized against journalists. Um, at least uh, at, in, in Indonesia, we have like we all often have similar, you know, frames of study um i think because we we share a lot um of commonalities and um uh, mm-hmm. you know um similarities in how um our political economic structure is is like mm-hmm. so yeah but mm-hmm. yeah i'm going to be biased to the philippines we really have mm-hmm. <laughs> because that's what i'm seeing
0: <laughs> well that's mm-hmm. good
3: yeah it's it's really good yeah
0: yeah because i couldn't say that about my country think. <laughs> <laughs>
3: there's there's <laughs> hope at least yeah
0: yeah,
1: yeah. i mean w- there's a there's a netflix film from indonesia that was recent re- recently released um and it's it talks about like digital privacy and um mm-hmm. it was based on you know like there was basically there was like this whole case about how something that happened digitally, like, like completely affected someone's life in real life. And it turned out to be this whole thing. And you don't know digitally, like who's talking and who's posting and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But the fact that it was on Netflix, I realized like, oh, you know, people are really talking and paying attention. So um, I am hopeful, even though part of me is also like, whoa, with like TikTok and how, how, Disinformation is being spread on TikTok is just is just so crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, we live in a very strange world.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's that's one way of saying it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm curious. Like, is there do do um, uh, like news agency now starting to
3: shifting towards TikTok in the Philippines? Yeah, I think there are. Um, yeah. You have to go to where the battle is. So even our university, um, we have our own TikTok account. You have to be there yeah. so that you know you're in the heat of the battle. <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean TikTok. It's so fascinating. It's it's the very short, mm-hmm. like format to for you to consume a content, but it's but it's like so effective and. I don't know. Yeah, I'm... I think that says a lot about us human. <laughs> yeah,
1: how something like that is so effective. Yeah.
3: Uh, but I'm shielding myself from TikTok. I don't use it. <laughs> oh, me
1: too. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't. don't touch... I don't have. I don't have TikTok. <laughs> no. We haven't touched, but a lot of people have been saying it's like, it it shows, this is so ridiculous, but people are saying, look, it it shows that someone is old if they don't have TikTok, (laughs) because Instagram is now the previous generation's thing, so, oh well.
3: I'm, I'm, I'm okay with Instagram Reels.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, actually I just watch random TikToks that's reposted on
0: Instagram. On Instagram. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like an old oh, yeah. person. Yeah. Well, so our our last question we normally close by asking what is your favorite Filipino dish?
3: What's my favorite Filipino dish? Definitely sinigang.
1: Ah, okay.
3: Are you familiar? Yeah,
1: yeah. pork, right?
3: Um, pork. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pork sinigang. But you can also have it in seafood, mm. like um, shrimp. Yeah, but pork sinigang is the best. <laughs> Top tier.
1: Yeah. I love pork. And so, like, Filipino food is always... Um, I always love Filipino food because there's so much pork.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like our pork. Yeah.
1: Another, another closing question that we ask is... Is there any big global misconceptions about the Philippines that you feel need to be dismantled?
3: We're not all good singers.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love that because
0: there was our, we had another guest, right? And um, she also said the same thing. <laughs> yeah, Mitzi from the Philippines. Yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all Pinoy pride out there, but, you know.
1: I have to say, I have to say, though, I went to an elementary school um here in Indonesia, and there were a lot of Filipinos. Oh, really? And they always won oh. the singing competitions. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Definitely, they're trained.
1: <laughs> they're trained, and they they fall into they happen to fall into the stereotype.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I think um, in, in Indonesia, the the more famous Filipino singer is Christian Bautista, Bautista. Sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Is he still cute? Yeah.
3: Because
0: <laughs> I remember I lost. Yeah, saw him. he's still cute. <laughs> he's still cute. Oh, I last saw him like when I was in. I don't know high school or something
3: <laughs> yeah he's still cute <laughs>
1: okay. his song was yeah. like it was so it was everywhere for like two years
0: yeah yeah <laughs> what is it since i found he's you the is he... that is that the way
1: no the way you look at me oh, yeah also the, the way you look, look at me. me yeah yeah yeah
3: mm-hmm. he won in a singing contest here
2: yeah
1: so
3: yeah that's yeah. it we're not all good singers <laughs> but we can you know we like doing karaoke, karaoke not expect everyone to be belting out the right (sighs)
1: shoes that's i i love that i love that you said that (laughs) well thank you for doing this with us thank you for spending your morning with us
3: yeah 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 thank you so much yeah thank you so much it's nice meeting you, and hopefully, I can also invite you in, in my podcast. Oh
2: yeah!
3: Hello. Oh, you have a podcast. Yeah. Do you want to? Yeah. Do you want to promote it? Yeah, sure, Um, but it's in Filipino because I use it mostly for um for my students. Ah, um, so it's, we don't speak. It's one of the things I that on. I. <laughs> but maybe who knows? <laughs> maybe our listeners who. Yeah, so if you want to learn more about like the developments um in the Philippines, like. The usual issues, contemporary issues, you can listen to our um, short lessons. So it's almost just around 20 to 30 minutes. Um, I'm just talking to, uh, to also people, um, sc- young scholars and um, workers in the development sector. It's called Extra Notes. So I called it like that because um, it's not something that you usually learn inside the classroom. We're trying to just integrate it still in the classroom. Um, and you can listen it, listen to it while you're walking or while you're riding the jeepney. So yeah, listen to extra notes.
0: And where do people can
3: find your podcast? It's in Spotify uh, and it's also in Google Podcasts.
0: Okay. Spotify and Google Podcasts. Go check it
3: out. Extra note. Yep. Yep. So it's, it's in Taglish. So uh, Tagalog and So you may be able to get some. Yeah,
1: maybe. I picked up a lot of Tagalog from my elementary school friends and teachers. um, And I lost it over the years.
3: (laughs) Maybe I can finally practice my bahasa when I talk to you.
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) On the podcast. Yeah.
3: Yeah.